Welcome to Pragmatic Live, the podcast series for product management and marketing professionals. I'm Lisa Sorg-Friedman, and today I'm talking with Paul Schweda about customer profiling. Paul is the author of Eight Blocks, The Critical Realities for Growing Any Business, and he's the managing partner of Locomotive Solutions, a consulting firm focused on helping businesses grow into the next stage of their lives. We ran an excerpt of Eight Blocks in the most recent issue of Pragmatic Marketer. I've also read Paul's book, and I highly recommend it. It's not only entertaining, but it's succinct and full of great information. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Lisa. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about uh, our topic. If you don't know these things, you don't know your customers. And um, I've had a chance to read your book, Eight Blocks, the Critical Realities for Growing Any Business, and I really enjoyed it. And... I, I'm curious. I know at the beginning of the book you, you state that the book is about growing your business, and I know that your consulting business, Locomotive Solutions, focuses on helping businesses grow to the next level. Mm-hmm. So can you um, share a little bit about how your business influenced your decision to write this book? Yeah, absolutely. I, You know, I, I refer to myself as a business dork, and I really am. I love business. I love it like some people love hockey or or working on old cars or something, or sailboats, I don't know. It, but it really fascinates me, and I, I find a lot of meaning in it. I find a lot of meaning in helping businesses thrive. I feel like they're really the foundation of a successful society. Bigger topic for another day, but as a business dork, I really dig the opportunity to see what works and why or why, or why not it works within a business. Um, I've had the chance to do that in many different diverse companies, lots of different geographic markets, lots of different types of businesses, software, hardware, services. And I've had the chance to do it both from the inside of a number of businesses um, in the publicly traded world and from the outside as a consultant. What I've seen is that the dynamics here, the things that enable growth and the things that frustrate growth, are common across all businesses and industries. The eight blocks from the book are just the eight realities that we have to get aligned with or else uh, we won't be able to make successful plans to grow. We'll be able to make plans to grow all day long, but we'll find ourselves banging our heads against one wall or another. So of those eight blocks, as we talk about customer profiling today, that's one of the the second set of four. The first set of four are are about us. They're about our business. They're internal realities. Um, and it really doesn't matter. I've seen this a lot. It really doesn't matter what someone else, someone with a, a different business, different culture, different risk tolerance or competencies, it doesn't matter what they could do to grow in a market. It only matters what we can do. I've seen company after company get frustrated because they ignored the realities of who they were. So they came up with a beautiful PowerPoint about how they were going to grow, but nothing came of it. Um, what we're talking about today, customer profiling, understanding customers, is part of the second four, the four external realities. And those are about the market, which means they're things that any business that wants to grow in a certain market segment has to get lined up with if that business is going to succeed. So these things about the customer, um, doesn't matter what business we're in, what market we're in. Being a customer entails the same core dynamics, whether I'm buying steel here in the United States or I'm I'm buying software in Dubai. As a customer, I'm I'm dealing with a similar set of of dynamics. So that that's what I look forward to talking with today is kind of those five those five aspects of profiling your customer, understanding a customer, so that you can really figure out what's going to work. That's what I'm excited about. Well, great. Well, let's dive in. 
So what do you see as the biggest thing that businesses don't know about their uh, customers? Yeah, there's there's so many things we often don't know that we th- we think we know, we think we ought to know, but I think the most fundamental failure we have in understanding the customer is knowing why they do what they do. What value do they assign to my business's offering and the competitive alternatives? So, um you know, when, we, when we're marketing something, it's our whole world. It could be, you know, we could be selling the stickers that are affixed to mufflers to certify that they meet emission standards. It's the very last thing anyone in the customer's world is thinking about. But to us, you know, certification stickers are everything. They're, they're our entire business. So when we, when we have that paradigm, we often forget to think about why the customer cares. Why does the customer care about my product or service in the first place? Is it a regulatory standard they have to fulfill? The hassle they're trying to avoid is it is it something that makes them look good to their peers or their boss or or their neighbor? That is the critical context in the customer profile. Everything else flows from that. All our decisions about how we promote something and build it and deliver it and support it come out of that uh, "why do they care?" question. Huh. All right. So, what are some of the biggest mistakes that business make in their assumptions about customers? The biggest mistakes are generally assuming customers think the way I do. They they must think about and value things the same way we do here inside the business. Uh, reputation, price. Um, often, I don't want to be cynical, but often I think the mistake comes from thinking we're more important than we are rather than recognizing where we really fit into the customer's world. There's a, a favorite example of mine is the whole made in the – Fill in the blank country in this in our in the United States here it's usually made in the USA for American manufacturers it's really common and, and enticing it's a very enticing proposition to think that the fact that we can put made in the USA on our products must be really valuable to our customer because it's really valuable to us we, valuable to us we, we put a lot of pride in that but that's rarely the case rarely does a customer think about it the same way we do. Um, if a customer, and this is probably a good one to peel apart a little bit, if a customer assigns some value to, quote-unquote, made in the USA, and that can mean all kinds of different things in different products and industries, but there's some real value there, and it's not made in the USA generally. There may be some quality that is defined by that. They may say, okay, because it's made in the USA, I know that it has a certain level of quality, which delivers a certain level of reliability, which reduces my cost or my hassle or some other more tangible value than just the esoteric, you know, uh, patriotic pride. It may be something about government regulations. Well, I have to have X amount made in the USA in order to qualify for X subsidy and, and so forth. Um, maybe a reputation thing. I want to be known as someone who uh, buys from American-made manufacturers. Or I want to think of myself, self-image is being so powerful. I want to think of myself in that way. All those things are real values. They're, they're real things the customer thinks about or would think about if they're willing to be honest with themselves. But inside the business, you know, we can, we can walk around all day talking about how being made in the USA is so wonderful, especially when all our competitors are overseas. So mm-hmm. thinking about assuming that our customers think the same way we do is probably the single biggest mistake that, that businesses make. The critical variable, I think, is, is objectivity. That's the one thing that I 
I encourage folks, if, if they're going to try to identify reality, the nature of identifying reality is being objective. And the challenge for us inside the business is to set aside our cherished beliefs or our oral traditions, you know, this is the way it is, um, our personal pride of ownership, set those things aside so that we can perceive objectively, honestly, whatever the customer's true perspective is. All right, so what are some of the best ways to get to know customers and their values so that you're not assuming things without any um, anything to back it up? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm a big fan of, of pursuing VOC, voice of the customer, and not pursuing it in a rote fashion or in a in a very straightforward, point-blank fashion. Um, I think going out and asking people, how do you assign value to this? You know, what do you think about that? That is, at least at face value, That's it's hard to get good insight from that. Uh, Henry, Henry Ford is famous for saying, you know, if, if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And he provided something much better because he understood their world. He understood it not by asking them what they wanted, but by understanding what they valued, how they thought about transportation, how they structured their lives, um, how they made decisions about solving the problem of getting from point A to point B uh, and why they were trying to get from point A to point B in the first place. So I find that going out, walking around in the customer's shoes as much as possible, take me around your plant, take me around your office, take me, if you would, out where you interact with your customers and let me see how your world works. Let me understand why you chose to do a instead of B. Why did you say that? Why did you think that was important? Why did you make this decision about how you structured your personnel, uh, you know, financial model, whatever it was? As best you can, um, to divorce yourself from your own product or service so that they don't feel like they have to walk on eggshells around you and, and come up with some answers to your questions that will help you feel good about your own uh, product, which, which they will if you don't do that. To be able to divorce yourself from your own product or service and ask them, maybe even skeptically, about their value equation. You know, why did that matter to you? I know you bought this from us, but why would you do that? To even ask that skeptically often allows them to get comfortable, to get off of the stage and into the audience with you and, and be thinking candidly about how their world works. All right. So really talking to the customers and getting inside their environment as best as possible is going to help you understand their pain points and, and build a better product for them. Yeah, and I think you know, the, the, the more traditional methods or the more structured and formal methods can be excellent. It all depends on how we use them, whether it's focus groups or surveys. Um, those things can be used to extrapolate on insight. They can be used to gauge interest in one option versus another. Um, they can even be used to gather foundational insights about a customer, but when they're when you're using them in, in that way to gather foundational insights, I think I think they have they have to be divorced from from they have to help the customer not think they're being asked directly about a product or service. You know, don't to ask someone flat out about pricing or you know um, this list of features or those kinds of things. It's it's too fraught with uh, mixed motives and complicated agendas and things like that. So 
Uh, I really, really, whenever possible, I advise anyone, sales, product development, engineering, anywhere in the business they find themselves, to be able to get out in the customer's world, walk around with them in their shoes, see how they interact in the hallways and with customers and, and in their own facility, and, and try to understand what's happening at the root of all this. Why are they acting this way? Why are they assigning value this way? Um, and, and come up with the insights through those more informal methods. Okay. And I'm guessing that doing this helps mitigate some of the um, opinions that people inside the business already have, you know, that they think they know their customers. Um, and so by actually getting out and talking to their customers, you can eliminate some of those opinions and maybe what they perceive as facts about customers. Yeah, we, we can eliminate some, but we can also validate and and draw out better insights from inside the business. I I do think there's a lot of good insight. In, in any business that's been around a good long while, it's well-established, it's, it's succeeding at some reasonable level, there's a lot of insight inside the business. It just may not be on the surface. It, it may not be what we say or what we expound to each other, but it's there. Um, and I'm kind of... I'm kind of a split personality when it comes to sales. Sales is, you know, the area where we often think, well, sales is out there interacting with the market every day, right? So they must have the best insight into the market. But really, sales' job is to bring in sales today, tomorrow, next quarter, next year. And that may or may not coincide with an, an objective and insightful view of the customer's bigger picture and the processes and the thinking behind it, um, especially if we're talking about new products, new markets, uh, where we really need to understand pretty broadly. So if, you know, I referred to Henry Ford um, saying that if he'd asked his customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Same thing's true of sales. If you would have asked Henry Ford's salespeople what their customers needed, the salespeople would have said faster horses because that's kind of what's, what's in front of their nose. But the other side of the coin with sales for me is that there's a true source of insight there that's not on the surface. And I think validating through experience is the key. Um, having a conversation with sales where you set aside the obvious questions of, well, how much does it have to cost? Less. How many features does it have to have? More. You know, those types of things. To, to set that aside and say, you know, if you're dealing with one of these customers, we're talking about a segment that, that sales already interacts with, so they, they have some intuition into that segment. If you were dealing with this segment, Mr. and Mrs. Salesperson, and you knew that you could offer a longer warranty, but it would be offset by this. You think they'd take it? You think they'd? Do you think you could get 10% more for that? Do you think it's? Do you think it's more useful than, you know, feature Y? Those sorts of insights where you start to where you start to draw out uh, insight into the market based on on validation of experience, especially when you do that with a number of folks that have interacted with the marketplace. That's where good patterns emerge. So I, I think that's one example in sales, but that's, a, that's an example of how there is some great insight inside the business, but it's not the stuff that's staring you in the face most of the time. Uh, very few businesses that I've walked into have a, a real clear objective view of, of their customer profile, of, of how all that works. You have to dig for it. All right. Well, so... I'm guessing, or it sounds like validating the experience is a really effective way to start sorting the good from the bad. Yeah, and it's it's kind of comparable to um, 
it's kind of comparable to at least my bias regarding structured customer interactions, focus groups, surveys, things. Okay. The insights are not at the surface. They're not the face value questions. They are trying to dig deeper and understand the why. It's really, for me, it's all about the why. Okay, if a customer cares about um, the price being more or less, why do they care about it? And, it's, and that's never an obvious answer. That, that's never just a sing-song answer. If a customer seems hesitant to go with a solution that, seems to us to be so obvious. I mean, it's just a, it would be a no-brainer if we were that customer. Well, then understanding why they're hesitant, even if they pull the trigger, why are they hesitant? That is a, that is a great insight into understanding the customer's world. What is nagging at the back of their mind? Is it that they will um, look bad? Maybe if they, you know, maybe there's a, a societal or, pers- or um interpersonal risk there. They might look bad because they recommended a certain solution and it could fall through. That's the kind of classic nobody gets fired for buying from IBM thing. Um, is it something about how they perceive our company and our ability to deliver on the promises? There's uh, anytime, anytime we have the question to ask why is that value being stated or is that action being taken, now we're starting to dig into the good stuff. Okay. In eight blocks, you make some comparisons between racial profiling, which has gotten a lot of attention lately, and customer profiling. Mm-hmm. Why is customer profiling so important? And I don't, certainly don't want to endorse racial profiling. That can be a pretty awful thing. But a customer profiling is a pretty wonderful thing. I, I really think it is. And the reason we need to profile, and particularly profile by customer segment, is that we need to be able to um, figure the figure out the general buckets that customers belong in. We can't afford to treat every customer like they're a novelty. Nor can we afford to make a big, sweeping, universal, and therefore often incorrect or incomplete set of assumptions about all customers. So we have to look at the segments. And pretty much every business has just a handful of segments that really matter. I, I've seen as few as Two, well, well, you could have a one-segment business, but really there's usually two or three. There's not really more than four, five, six, uh, and I don't mean GE. GE is a collection of businesses. When I say business, I mean <clears throat> a unit, something that's a coherent presentation to the market. So within GE, you have the refrigerator business, and there's probably a handful of segments that matter there. Every business, particularly those that want to grow, has to be able to craft scalable efforts to go to market by segment. You can't have everyone running around treating every prospective customer like they're working from a blank slate. Well, what should we say to in this meeting? How should we define our value in this email? It, it just doesn't scale. At the same time, we can't afford to treat them all the same because they're not. So if you use a universal approach to every, treat every prospective customer as if they belong to one big segment, you're going to be creating friction. You'll be talking about things they don't care about, You'll be missing opportunities to build credibility, um, and all that means you're reducing your potential to succeed in that segment. So I use the example of the movies. I think uh, Hollywood does a great job of paying attention to segmentation. Sometimes they're brilliant at it. I'll be sitting in a theater um, for some movies watching previews thinking, man, I want to see every single one of these movies. I'm excited about all six previews they showed me. And other times, before I even see the movie I've gone to see, I'll just watch the previews and think, maybe this movie that I haven't seen yet isn't for me. Maybe it's intended for something else. Because these previews, 
aren't scratching my itch. So at that point, I'm feeling the fit or the lack thereof of segmentation. I'm feeling, okay, these folks know who I am, how I think, what I'm interested in, and they're marketing to me in the right way when I'm sitting there watching previews thinking I want to see every one of these movies. So that's kind of the, the importance is being able to scale by profiling at the right level of segmentation. Hmm. I, yeah, I like that analogy with the movie previews because I know there's some I go in and, like you, I want to see every movie that's previewed and others I go, oh, this is not for me. Right, right. It taints, it taints the experience of the movie to follow probably. It does. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it makes me wonder, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't be watching the movie that I've just paid to see because of all these previews. Right. <laughs> but I'm in a different segment. Well, in, in Chapter 8 of uh, your book, which addresses customer profiling, you talk about five key aspects of customers, what they are, how they work. And can you could just go over those for us? Yeah, and I'll, I'll do it quickly. Um, I think they're just the five main facets of the customer profile. Yeah. I think they flow from one to the other. And I mentioned the first one, the most fundamental, which is context. That's the whole, why does the customer even care? Every, mm -hmm. pro every product or service solves a problem. That's, you know, only, only solving problems really has value, even if it's disguised as an opportunity. Well, you, you could make more money if, well, there's only value in making more money if we somewhat decided, semi-consciously, totally consciously, that we're not making enough money today. So only solving problems has value, and that's the context for this whole thing. Why does the, this prospective customer even have any interest in interacting with me? Uh, there's something going on in their life and business that I can help them with. The second is culture, and that's where we start to get into to some pretty nuanced stuff because we need to understand what aspects of their culture do we need to fit into and what do we not need to fit into. You know, um, I think of, uh, we all do this intuitively, I think, but if we're hiring a salesperson, for example, for a certain product, certain market, we know that there are some cultural aspects of that segment that we really need to fit. You know, you, you just can't send uh, you just can't send Mr. Highfalutin into a nonfalutin customer environment, and vice versa. Or you can't send someone who um, comes across a certain way in terms of education or technical expertise into certain environments. You, you just you just have to suit the culture. So that's the second aspect of customer profiling that we need to understand. What are, what are these people like in this segment, just generally? And what are the critical variables that we have to uh, match up with, we have to be kind of congruent with, compatible with? The third is is roles. And this is, this is really uh, brass tacks kind of stuff. I like um, the Miller-Hyman strategic selling roles. They t uh, that's from the 28 company. But... They talk about the economic buyer, the technical buyer, the user buyer, the coach. There are other models out there for what are the roles you find in a customer situation. But this is powerful stuff because there's someone wearing each of these hats in every prospective customer. They, you know, Even if it's a one-person customer, uh, maybe the spouse at home is wearing a different hat of technical buyer or something like that. But we have to determine, in this case, who the economic buyer is, who pulls – who holds the purse strings? Who will ultimately say yes or no to spending money on our product or service? Who's the technical buyer? 
who's the one who has to say, yes, this fits our technical needs, and not technical as in it's always high-tech kind of stuff. I mean, does it fit our, our specs, our way of using it, those those sorts of things. That's the, that's the technical buyer, and that's often a different person from the economic buyer. Uh, the user buyer is the one who's actually going to live with the solution, the one who's going to use it day in and day out. And the coach is the role we rarely think about, or many of us rarely think about, but should be thinking about all the time, and that is there's some person inside the customer organization or outside of it who, for some reason, has uh, some self-interest that aligns with our self-interest, and it's in their interest to help us navigate the sale, to help us understand who the various role players are and how the decision-making process works and things like that. Often, uh, the reason roles are so critical is that often we'll take whoever is presented to us, who, you know, whoever answers the email, responds to the phone call, whoever's willing to meet with us, we're willing to just work that contact to death. But we need to think about what can that person achieve within this sale, what can he or she not achieve, and who else is playing a critical role in this process so that we can get engaged with them at the right time in the right way in order to navigate the sale. So that's why roles are so critical. Uh, the last two are uh, one one we don't think about at all or often don't think about at all and one we think about all the time but I don't think we get it right. The, the, uh, the fourth is decision-making process. This is one I don't think we think about much. We, often we just you know, we just keep knocking on the door, and eventually a sale pops out, and that's kind of all. That's kind of the extent of our thinking. But every customer, whether it's formalized or not, has a real decision-making process, and we have to fit into that. We have to navigate the timing, the sequence, um, the roles fit into that certainly to understand how we can work this thing through, how we can forecast it. My goodness, how important is that for many of us, and so forth. So decision-making, and then the final one is my favorite because we think about it all the time. But, boy, do we often miss big chunks of the competitive landscape. And we talk about competitors. We analyze competitors. But I've seen businesses think about their own paradigm, think from their own paradigm, and think so narrowly that in their minds there's nobody else in the world that does what they do. I mean, they are the only ones who can solve this problem for this customer. But, of course, that was true they would have 100% market share, and they don't. So something else is going on here. I think what what else is at play is that the, the true competitive landscape, this, this last aspect of profiling the customer, is comprised of all the things a customer in the segment would consider when faced with the problem we can solve for them. So there's certainly the direct competitors. These are the people we think about all day long. We have them on our dartboards. They they generally do the kinds of things we do in a similar way that we do. Of course, they're all you know inferior to us by far, but there are some direct competitors out there we would acknowledge. But beyond that, there are definitely indirect competitors in most segments. These are folks who try to solve the problem for the customer but do it in a very different way. These are the folks we're we're inclined to dismiss because you know they're the old way of doing it or the unproven way of doing it or the inferior way of doing it. But they are a competitive alternative in the customer's mind. The last two types of competitors, though, are the really, really powerful ones and the ones we think about probably the least, and that is do-it-yourself or do-nothing. Almost every business 
almost every competitive landscape includes a pretty compelling do-it-yourself option where the customer says, I'm going to solve this problem for myself. It may be duct tape, band-aids, and three square nails, but I, I can get this done adequately to move on to other higher priority things. That's always an important competitor. And do nothing is surprisingly potent in many markets. The ability for a customer to live with pain, to live with problems, to put it off for another day, kick the can down the road, means that do nothing is sometimes our number one competitor for a particular solution. So those are the five aspects of profiling a customer that I think if if we do a reasonably good job of defining those five things, of thinking through those five angles on this customer profile, we'll have a pretty good sense for, for where this customer is at and how to go about the next steps of uh, figuring out how and what we're going to market to them. Hmm, interesting. Well, is it possible to take this too far? How do you know when you've done enough of the customer profiling? Yeah, that's, that's a good one because some of us are inclined to pursue a process to the nth degree. Um, so, yeah, you can, you can take it too far. I think the, the critical thing is to be objective, to be willing to move past the easy answers, the answers we like, which often aren't true, already gets us into superior territory. We're, we're already ahead of the game once we're working from a, a truly objective perspective. So working through these aspects of the customer profile objectively will help anyone get a reasonably good understanding of customers by segments. They're willing to be honest enough, long enough, uh, they can get to reasonably good. And that's what I think the objective is, get to, get to a reasonably good understanding of each customer by segment. And once we have that, then we can go to the next reality, which is defining the, the critical value proposition for that customer segment. Okay, I understand the customer profile. Therefore, what's the, what's the best value proposition for them? Then on to the next reality of, okay, how best should I reach them based on what value proposition I'm trying to communicate based on who they are? And on down to the last reality, which is ratios. Okay, understanding all that, how many do I need to talk to in what way, at what time? How do I need to put a funnel together that's going to lead me to an ultimate financial conclusion that I would consider success? So the, 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 re, the reason my objective is a reasonably good understanding is that as you begin to work down that process and put together your funnel, if there's an important deficiency in your understanding of the customer, it will become apparent along the way. Uh, so I err on the side of good enough because later on when you realize, oh, boy, I have no clue how this one, wh whether this one big assumption is true or I have a total gap in knowledge about this thing that could make the difference in whether we price it this way or that way or so forth, then you can go back and fill in the gap. Uh, but trying to get to perfection is always a bad thing, I think, in business, and uh, you won't be able to get there anyway. So the idea is to get moving with greater effectiveness and go back and fill in the critical stuff as as it becomes apparent, not just to you know, follow some perfect process of designing a customer profile just for the sake of fulfilling that process. All right. And finally, Paul, what about results? What are tangible outcomes of a better understanding of customer segments? Well, results are what we got to get to, right? It can't, like I say, it can't be a process <laughs> totally. for the sake of the process. So uh, there can be some big strategic results, big strategic decisions that come out of this. Uh, but even if you don't make any major adjustments in, you know, we're, we're not going after that segment or we're not developing that product, um, 
effective customer profiling, when you work it consistently throughout all the processes, simply means that you end up talking to the right people or more of the right people at the right time or closer to the right time about the right things in the right ways. So you're setting better expectations with customers. You're focusing your own operational people on the things that matter to the customer, always a good thing. So the, the tangible stuff, I find, are uh, less waste in many, in many cases, less wasted time pursuing dead ends, uh, less time pursuing a customer that's not going to close, the example of the dead end, because if you really understand it, you know that they're never going to get there. Another tangible outcome is higher close rates. You know, the better we understand the customer, the better we craft the value proposition, the more effectively we work the process, uh, the better our close rates. And I think when we do those things, we end up with more profitable transactions. So I think a good customer profiling program ought to lead to either uh, more revenue at the same gross margin per transaction, greater gross margin per transaction regardless of the top line, or both. And I think ultimately the customers are happier because, remember, we're setting expectations that match them. Uh, we, you know, we're doing the things that lead you and I to sit in the movie theater thinking, this was a great experience. I just love the previews even before I got to the movie. So we're fitting into their world, and uh, by fitting into them, we're leading to more and ever better good things. It's a very positive cycle. So those are some of the tangible benefits that we ought to be able to get to. If we do this well, we ought to be able to get down to the level of seeing real improvements in metrics from customer profiling. Good stuff. Thanks, Paul. I, I really appreciate you joining us today to talk about your book, Eight Blocks, The Critical Realities for Growing Any Business. And I hope that our readers will also uh, read the book. I found it very enjoyable. Good. I appreciate that, Lisa. I always love to support Pragmatic Marketing. It's a great organization doing great stuff. Thank you very much. A pleasure talking with you, Paul. Take care. To learn more about customer profiling, check out our website, pragmaticmarketing.com, where we've got articles, webinars, ebooks, and white papers. And check out our podcast notes to find a link to an excerpt from eight blocks that appeared in the spring 2016 issue of Pragmatic Marketer.